And I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 11. There's some notes in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along with notes, know where we're headed. Luke 11. This morning we're six weeks into a study of Jesus' parables. And over the last six weeks, we've been wrestling with the tension that is inherent with parables. And the tension is, why did Jesus teach in parables? And the obvious answer, the immediate answer that we normally give is Jesus taught in parables because he was trying to take sort of abstract spiritual concepts and bring them down to something concrete that we can understand a little bit easier. And there's truth to that. That's what Jesus does in parables, and we've used this definition week in and week out. A parable is a story taken from real life that teaches a moral or a spiritual truth. Sometimes moral and spiritual truths are just a little bit abstract, and they're hard to wrap our arms around. And in a parable, Jesus takes something that's just common every day. Maybe it's a mustard seed. Maybe it's a a candle. Maybe it's a, a woman getting married, whatever something that we're familiar with, and he just sort of takes that moral, spiritual truth, and he makes it a little bit easier for us to understand. The tension comes in when Jesus himself was asked, why do you teach in parables? And his answer was not, I just want to make it easier so that every person can get it. His answer was, as shocking as it sounds to us, I'm teaching in parables so that some people will get it and some people won't. In a parable, if you think about it, is kind of like the long way around to get to the truth. There was a lot of times people came to Jesus and they had a question or they had a concern and they brought this to Jesus and they wanted sort of a straightforward answer. And instead of giving them that straightforward answer, Jesus kind of backs into it. He kind of takes the long way around with the parable. And if you're really not interested in listening to the answer, you're not going to take the trip with Jesus. If you were there just to trick him or to trap him or to make Jesus look foolish, as soon as he starts telling a story, your mind is gone and you're somewhere else. But when he takes these people on this trip, he is going to come around and he's going to talk to them about something that's true morally or especially true spiritually. So let's just start with some of the background of this story because I think this parable we're about to read, in my opinion, is one of the trickier parables to make sense of. You need to know there's a parallel parable in Luke 18 about a persistent widow and an unjust judge. Two stories that Jesus told, two different occasions, they're very, very similar stories. They're both sort of getting at the same idea of what it means to be a person of prayer and how we approach God in prayer. So they sort of share that theme, but they're different enough to sort of have their own individual emphases. So we're going to talk about Luke 18 a little bit later because understanding why Jesus told that parable can help us make sense of Luke 11, but our focus is going to be here in Luke 11. You need to know that in Luke 11, the parable comes right after the disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. You just got to know what's going on. And if you look in your Bible at Luke 11, verse 1, you read this. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So the 12, they're listening to Jesus pray, and they say, this guy, there's something different about the way that he prays, about the the spirit he prays with, or the words that he uses, or the tone of his voice. There's just something they couldn't put their finger on. And they say, hey, Jesus, 
John the Baptist, he taught his guys how to pray. We want you to do the same thing with us. We want to know how to pray like you do it. And everything that follows that we're about to look at flows from that question. This is important, okay? The parable assumes, when you read the context and you know this question, it assumes that we will pray and that we will want to improve our prayers. And for some of you, the conviction may need to begin right now. Some of you, you'd give me, you know, the right Christian answer, church answer, Sunday morning answer, and I say, how's your prayer life? And you say, great, I talk to God all the time. But truth be told, you find yourself in a pickle and you ask God for help, and that's about the only time you talk to him. And your prayer life really doesn't extend much beyond that. And this parable assumes that we will be people who pray. Not only that we will be people who pray, but that we will want to grow in this discipline. That we will want to be people who pray correctly. That we'll be humble enough to say to Jesus, Jesus, I don't always know what to say when I come and I talk to you. I need you to teach me how to pray. And I need to be humble enough to listen to how it is you would have me to pray. So those are important assumptions inherent in the parable we're about to read. The big idea is really simple, really, really simple and really important. Understanding the character of God changes the way that we pray. And this is kind of how Jesus backs the disciples into it, right? They come with the question, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And in this instance, he gives them the direct answer. And you can read it in verse 2, 3, and 4. He says, okay, do it like this. That's how you do it. But instead of stopping with that direct answer, he then uses a parable to sort of back into it. And what he's saying in this parable is, you've got to understand something about the person you're praying to before you understand anything about prayer itself. And if Jesus, in his mind, if I can get you to understand the truth about what God is like in his character, prayer is going to be much easier and much more biblical. And so look at the passage. We're going to read it. Luke 11, beginning in verse 5, and we'll go down to verse 13. He said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, Lead me, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit 
to those who ask him. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we stop this morning and we still our hearts and our minds and our bodies to look at your word and to listen to your word and to sit under the authority of your word, we pray for your spirit. We pray that your spirit would convict us. We pray that your spirit would encourage us. Father, we pray that your spirit would take your word, the word inspired by the spirit of God and press it home in our hearts that we would see truth and that we would see clearly how we ought to be people who pray. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's pretty obvious here. Jesus is telling a story that at least for his original audience is very familiar. For us, it's not so familiar. If you were to have somebody come to your house unexpectedly in the middle of the night, your first reaction would not be, I'm going to go to my neighbor and ask for a loaf of bread. If you didn't have anything in the house, which would probably be unlikely, you'd get up and you'd go to a 24-hour grocery store, 24-hour convenience store, and you'd buy something to feed your neighbor. You understand that this is a different culture, and this is a different context, which makes parables a little bit trickier sometimes. There's also a, a difference in hospitality between our culture and an Eastern culture. And in Jesus' day, for somebody to come and to knock on your door was an honor for you the person who heard the knocking, and it would be a shameful thing if you didn't feed and welcome the person who had come to your door. So this man, he's asleep. He probably has a one-room home. They're lucky to have one bed. The family's piled in. The door's bolted shut. It's dark. It's late. Everyone's asleep, and he hears the knocking on the door, and he says, go away. We're asleep. And the friend says, I can't go away because I have friends at my house and they're hungry and I'm out of food. You've got to give me something to eat so I can take it back home and feed my guest. Otherwise, I'll be shamed. This is the sort of situation that the people listening to Jesus would have experienced. They would have been familiar with this type of situation, even though it's a little bit strange to us. And Jesus uses this common story, everyday story, to teach important spiritual truths, in this instance, about prayer. So we're going to think about prayer for a minute. How many of you, just show of hands, how many of you have heard the phrase, prayer works? Raise your hand. I'd be willing to bet that most of us, a lot of us, have said that at some point in our lives. Prayer works. And I don't want to show of hands. I don't want to answer out loud. Okay, this is rhetorical. So those of you who are eager, just zip it here, okay? If somebody said to you, do you believe that prayer works? I'm curious to know what your answer would be. I read this week a little bit about Mark Twain. It got me thinking about Mark Twain. Uh, His real name, some of you know, was Samuel Clemens, but he wrote under this pen name. It was the last of several different pen names that he used, Mark Twain. And you know him for the adventures of Tom Sawyer in the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And I came across a, a part of the story about Huckleberry Finn, and it's talking about prayer. And it's sort of talking about this idea that prayer works. And it's a little bit long. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to put the words up, and I'm going to do my best to read like, you know, he writes. If you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. So here we go. Does prayer work? Then Miss Watson, she came, and she took me in the closet and prayed. But nothing come of it. She told me to pray every day, and whatever I asked for, I would get it. But it weren't so. I tried it. Once I got a fish line, but no hooks. 
weren't any good to me without the hooks. I tried for the hooks three or four times, but somehow I couldn't make it work. By and by, one day, I asked Miss Watson to try for me, but she said I was a fool. She never told me why, and I couldn't make it out no way. I sat down one time back in the woods and had a long think about it. I says to myself, if a body can get anything they pray for, why don't Deacon Wynn get back the money he lost on pork? Why can't the widow get back her silver snuff box that was stole? Why can't Miss Watson fat up? No, I say to myself, there ain't nothing in it. I went and I told the widow about it. She said the thing a body could get by praying for it was spiritual gifts. This was too many for me. If you asked old Huck, does prayer work? He would say, no. It'll get you fish line, but no hooks. And it's sort of a humorous story, but it illustrates what Twain thought about the idea. Twain claimed to be a Presbyterian. That's the denomination he affiliated with. At best, he was a deist, which means he believed there was a creator God. He paid allegiance or professed to believe that there was some high God up there somewhere, but he did not think that God was involved in this world in any way, shape, or form. He was up there. He was distant. He was not involved. He was not interested. He wasn't listening to anyone's prayers. And if you ask Twain... Does prayer work? I don't even think he would give you an answer. I think he'd just laugh at you and say, well, if it works, then why don't you get everything that you pray for? Some of you are sort of feeling uncomfortable and you're saying, well, that's not what I mean when I say prayer works. But I want you to think about the phrase. I'm not a deist like Twain. I believe that there is a God who made the world and that he is still very much involved in this world. But I'd be inclined to agree with him in saying, I don't like the phrase or the idea, prayer works. And maybe we're just sort of splitting hairs a little bit. Maybe there's a difference in semantics. I just get uncomfortable when we assign too much credit or too much power to our prayers instead of to God himself. Let's be honest. It's not prayer itself that inherently has power to do things or change things. It's God that has that power. And you read the story about Finn, and he says, if you could just get anything you wanted, well, why wouldn't you just get it? And we laugh about it on the screen, but I think about my life, and you can probably think about your life. There have probably been some things you very much wanted in your life not even selfish things I'm not talking about like red Camaros or you know big fancy houses I'm just talking about something maybe that you really wanted to see happen and you prayed about it and it didn't happen and you may walk away from the other side of that saying well that didn't work so I'm a little bit uneasy with this idea that prayer works. And I think what Jesus is saying to us in this parable, although you may be tempted to take him at sort of just immediate face value and say, man, it sounds like you can get anything you ask for. I think the subject of prayer in the Bible is way more complex than that. I don't think you can reduce it down to you ask for this and you ask for it long enough and with enough faith and many enough times and you're instantly going to get it. Because the Bible has several stories, multiple stories where people prayed for things and God's answer was what? No. 
In fact, at times God told people, don't ask about it anymore. Stop. It wasn't bad things they were asking for. It was good things. And God said, no. There's other passages in the Bible. You may have read some of these passages that just directly say, sometimes you don't get what you ask for in prayer because you're asking with sinful, selfish motives. There's other passages that say you may not hear a response to your prayer in the way that you hope because there's unrepentant sin in your lives. There's other passages that say sometimes we don't even know what it is we're supposed to pray for. You add all of those complexities in with this idea. Just try to wrap your mind around this. We won't untie this knot this morning. The Bible says that God knows all things, the beginning from the end, the words in your heart before they're formed on your tongue. All of it. He has a plan. There's not an atom or a molecule or anything in all of creation that's outside of his control. And we're supposed to come to him in prayer and ask him for things? Did he know we were going to ask? Has he already made up his plan? That's a big theological knot that I'm not sure I can wrap my arms all the way around. I'm just telling you this. You hear phrases like this thrown around, prayer works. And I think I know what most people mean. But I think it's also very easy to get confused with a broad, general, sort of pithy statement like that. And I think we've got to be much more careful when we talk about God and we talk about prayer. And so our goal this morning is not to figure out every nuance, detail, nook, and theological cranny about prayer. It's just to listen to Jesus. When the people closest to him came and said, we need you to teach us how to pray What did he say? That's what we're going to try to listen to this morning. So let's start with two quick ideas. You will not find Jesus teaching here. Not taught by Jesus. Number one, the parable does not teach the idea that we always get what we ask for if we ask with enough faith and if we ask with enough persistence. Verse 9 and 10, if you yank them out of the parable and you yank them out of the context of chapter 11, you can make them say just that, right? You understand, that's how health and wealth and prosperity preachers fool people. They don't say, I'm going to make something up out of the thin, you know, thin air. I'm just going to pull it out of the sky, and you're going to receive it as if it's God's word. They say, let me show you something in the Bible. Maybe they put it on a screen, or they write it on a card, they read it to you, and they say, look, the Bible says, ask, seek, knock, and whatever you ask for, you're going to get, whatever you seek, you're going to find, and if you knock, it's going to be opened. All you have to do is ask. So you ask, and nothing happens, and you come back, and you say, well, what happened? And they said, well, you must have done it wrong. Well, you haven't, done, you haven't, you haven't asked enough. You need to keep asking. We need to ask with a little more faith. You are doubting that God would actually do it. And they put the blame back on you, which is a cruel lie. It is not true that if you just ask for something enough times or you ask for something with enough faith that it's automatically going to happen. Listen, I understand what Jesus says. Ask, seek, knock, and you'll get it and you'll find it and the door will be opened. Don't forget the context. Jesus, teach us to pray. He says, do it like this. Verse 2. Father, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. That's how you pray. And then he follows it up and he says, when you're asking, asking for what? Not red Ferraris and big, huge mansions or everyone in your family never to get sick again. When you're asking for those things, God's name to be hallowed, the kingdom of God to come, bread for the day, forgiveness of your sins, and strength to get through temptation. When you pray for those things, you'll get them. That's what he's talking about. And anyone who turns verse 9 and 10 into some big blank check that you can cash in for whatever it is you want to ask for is a false teacher and a liar. And they're taking the words of Jesus and they're twisting them to say something that Jesus never said. So what is Jesus not teaching? Well, he's not saying you pray enough and you pray with enough faith, you get anything that you ask for. One more thing he's not teaching. The parable does not teach the idea that God is reluctant to answer the prayers of his people or the idea that God is annoyed with our prayers. I've had people say these exact words to me. I pray for the same thing over and over and over again, and at some point I feel like God is probably just tired of hearing it. Say, really? You think God is annoyed with you? I just, I think he's tired of listening to me ask for the same thing over and over and over. And you may draw the conclusion if you're reading this parable and you read about the guy who's already in bed, right? Think about the guy that's already in bed. He's put the kids down, animals are all quiet, everyone's asleep, the door's bolted shut, he's had a long day of work and he's ready to just put his head on the pillow. And then here comes his buddy knocking on the door. His friend. It's not just a neighbor, but it's his friend. And what does this man in his bed say to his friend? His initial response is, go away. You're bothering me. And he says, I need you to get up and to give me something. And he keeps asking. And he keeps asking. And the guy, let's just be honest, okay? Just... I don't know if you can use this word in a sermon, but I think you can. The guy in bed's a jerk. Right? His friend is in need. And what's his response? His response is to say, go away. You don't need friends like that in your life, by the way. And it's tempting to look at this story and to say, man, he just, he bugged him to death. And it's like he finally got up to do it because he was so annoyed, not because of their friendship, just because he was annoyed. And you may extrapolate that out and say, you know, I feel like I'm doing the same thing to God. Like I'm just trying to wear him down. I'm just bugging him. I'm just bothering him. But you've got to understand something. This parable is not based on comparison. It's based on contrast. Jesus is not trying to say God is just like the man asleep in bed. Jesus is saying the exact opposite of that. He's saying God is nothing like the man asleep in bed. He is not like this grouchy guy who won't get up until you bug him to death. God is nothing like that. He's not annoyed by your needs or your requests, even if you bring them daily over and over and over and over again. You're never going to hear the answer. You may hear a lot of answers you don't want to hear, but you're never going to hear the answer, go away. You're bothering me. 
You're annoying me. What Jesus is saying is this. If the lazy jerk of a neighbor will eventually get up and help him because he just gets worn down, how much more confidence should we have when we talk to our Heavenly Father? And we have that much more confidence because he's nothing like this neighbor who refuses to get out of bed. So it's not teaching the idea that God is reluctant to answer prayer or that God is annoyed with our prayers. And that leads us to an important idea that Jesus is teaching, okay? Two lessons from the parable of the persistent friend. Number one, the parable teaches us to persist in prayer, to persist in prayer. And look, if you'll just flip in your Bible, I think I even have it up on the screen, Luke 18, the parallel parable. Look at Luke 18, verse 1. Why did Jesus teach the parallel parable? Luke 18, 1 says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The reason he told these two stories is he wanted his disciples, he wanted his followers to be people of prayer who persisted in prayer. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Keep praying over and over and over again. And the same thing is true here in Luke 11. You'll notice the parable itself is actually verse 5 to 8. And there's a really interesting word. If you look at sort of the end of verse 8, there's a word, as I read it in the ESV translation, it's the word impudence. How many of you have used that word in the last week? Me either. Impudence. I have no idea. Just to my, I read that word and I say, I don't know what that means, impudence. So I get my Bible software out and I start looking and I look in the King James and it says importunity. Anybody use that word this week? Importunity. Nobody. We're over. Just a few other options. I could have listed more. The Holman Christian Standard Bible uses the word persistence. And that's actually in the footnotes of my Bible. I don't want to make fun of the, the translation I use. It says with a footnote down in the bottom, importunity or persistence. Another option from the New Living, and this is similar to what you'll find in the, the NIV, is shameless persistence. You understand there's a difference between persistence and shameless persistence, right? Right? You can be persistent and a little bit embarrassed about it. Like you can be persistent and know I'm kind of treading on thin ice here. I'm wearing somebody out. I'm about to cross the line. And you can still be persistent. Shameless persistence is just continual asking and you don't see anything wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. And that's what Jesus is saying in the parable. He says, look, the guy asleep is not going to get up just because his buddy comes and knocks on the door, but because he just keeps knocking and knocking and knocking and doesn't see anything wrong with it, and he's knocking and knocking and knocking, eventually the guy's going to get out of bed and give him what he needs. And you couple that with Luke 18.1, Jesus says, I'm teaching you this parable so that you might always pray and not lose heart. You understand, God is calling us to be people who persist in prayer. What kind of prayer? Prayer for that red Ferrari or that big giant mansion or the vacation home or the trip around the world? No, the kind of prayer you read about in verse 2, 3, and 4. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. That kind of prayer. 
And then at the end, Jesus says something really important. It helps you understand what he's trying to say in the parable itself, verse 5, 6, 7, 8. At the very end, he says, look, you realize that God is your heavenly father, right? He's not the jerk neighbor who won't get out of bed. He's your father. And he says, look, you guys, when Christmas time rolls around, you don't put coal in your kid's stocking. If your kid needs something to eat, you don't give them something that's going to harm them. If they want a piece of bread, you don't give them a rock. If they're asking for a fish for lunch, you don't give them a scorpion. If you, who are wicked to the core, know how to give good gifts to your kids, here again, there's contrast, not comparison, contrast. How much more can you trust God to give you what you need? This is the balance to this shameless persistence that we're called to pray with. Pray with shameless persistence. Persist in prayer over and over and over again. Don't give up. Keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. And while you're praying, you are trusting God is my heavenly Father who is going to give me what's best. And you and I ought to be people who pray, realizing and understanding, going into it. Sometimes I might ask for scorpions unknowingly. And God being a good father is going to give me fish instead. I may ask for what I think I need or I think I want and God may give me what I really need or I really want. There's a a pastor I like. His name's Tim Keller. He's written a book on prayer and if prayer is something you're interested in you should check his book out. It has a creative title. It's called Prayer. And in the book, he covers a lot of ground, talking about really great stuff about prayer. And as I studied this week, I was reminded of one quote, and I went back and I dug it out and I found it. This is what he says about prayer. God will either give us what we ask, or he'll give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. That's what a good father does, right? I'm either going to give you what you're asking for, or else... I'm going to say no, and I'm going to give you what you would ask if you knew everything that I knew. I'm going to give you what's best, not just magically whatever you put on the offering table in prayer. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, be shamelessly persistent in prayer. And as you persist in prayer, all along the way, you're trusting God is my Father, and He's going to give me what's best, either what I'm asking for or what I would ask for if I knew everything that he knew. That leads us right into the last idea. We've been talking about it all morning. This parable calls us to approach God as our Father. As our Father. Read verse 13 one last time with me. It says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, and in my Bible I have that double underlined, Holy Spirit. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now look, no one in here, your Sunday morning crew, everyone would say, yes, I want to have the Holy Spirit. Can can we just drop the church facade and be honest for a second? When Jesus is talking about prayer and he says, ask, seek, knock, you'll get whatever you Whatever you're asking for, you'll, you'll find whatever you're seeking. The doors will be open. And then he comes down to the very bottom, and he's sort of explaining it all. And he says, God's like your father. And he says, look, if you ask, God will give you the Holy Spirit. 
Doesn't that kind of feel like a bait and switch? I mean, when you're reading it, you're like, when did the Holy Spirit come into this? I just thought I was talking to God. I thought I was asking him for things and seeking things and knocking for things. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, what I'm going to get is the Holy Spirit. I don't remember even asking for the Holy Spirit. And it almost seems like he's sort of saying, you'll get whatever you want, you'll get whatever you want, but this is what you're going to get. And for some of us, again, you wouldn't say it out loud, and I wouldn't say it out loud, but when you read that last verse and it says you're going to get the Holy Spirit from the Father, the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Some of us get confused by that, and it throws us for a loop, and here's why. You and I are prone to think that prayer is about getting things from God rather than getting God. And the problem is with us, not with prayer. The problem is with us, not with the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the reality is you and I approach prayer as that's where you go ask God to give you stuff or things or to fulfill your requests. When the biblical picture of prayer is, that's where you go to get God. And if your idea of prayer is more focused and more centered on getting things from God rather than getting God himself, whatever it is that you're doing isn't even prayer at all. It's not about getting things from God. It's about getting God. And so when Jesus sums it all up and he says, look, your father is a good father, And if you pray this way, that his name would be hallowed and his kingdom come and you get your daily bread and forgiveness of your sins and you won't fall into temptation, don't lead you into temptation, you pray for all those things, you persist in those things, you're going to get what you're asking for. And what you're asking for in all of that is God himself. And you're going to get it. And it's going to be better than anything else that you would have ever asked for. Calls us to approach God as our Father. I think this is the hope of Romans 8. We're not going to read the whole thing, and I'm going to put it on the screen. I just want you to see what it says. He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. That's God the Father. He did not spare Jesus. He gave Jesus up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And again, that's a verse you can yank right out of Romans And forget what's around it and say, look, he's going to give you all things, whatever you ask for. Ask, seek, knock. And some, you know, slick health and wealth preacher is going to say, look, we'll pair these two verses together and we'll we'll help them make sense of each other. You just need to ask long enough and hard enough with enough faith and serious enough. And it says right here, he's going to give us all things. But if you keep reading, this is what you come to later in Romans 8. Paul says, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what Paul is saying is not he's going to give you all the things that you want. But he's saying if God didn't spare his son, but he gave him up for us all, it's certain that we're going to get him. And we're going to be connected to his love no matter what happens in our life. And there's some stuff in that list that you may not want to go through. And Paul says it doesn't matter. None of those things can change the fact that you're going to get the gift that God wants to give you. Your father is a good father. 
And he has done everything that needed to be done to give you the greatest gift. He planned your salvation from eternity past. And he sent his son to accomplish it by living a life of obedience and dying on the cross for our sins. And he sent his spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus, he sent his spirit into your life to give you life when you were dead, to move you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son, to give you a heart that beats for God rather than a heart that's like a rock. He's done everything that he needed to do so that you would never be separated from his love. And that's what Jesus is saying in this parable. God is a good father. He's going to give you exactly what you need. He's going to give you himself. And nothing's going to change that. So you ask and you seek and you knock and you do it with shameless persistence, trusting that God is a good father who will give you what you seek. Let's pray together. Father, as we listen to Jesus, we just stop to confess that we and our selfishness turn prayer into something that it was never intended to be. Father, forgive us when we make prayer all about getting things from you rather than getting you. Forgive us when we value your gifts more than we value the giver of the gifts. Father, forgive us when we come to you in prayer forgetting that you are a good and gracious and wise Father. Forgive us when we come in prayer and try to give you advice. When we try to tell you what you ought to do. And Father, help us to be people who trust you and who seek you. Father, be honored in our worship as we end this morning. We humbly pray it and we gladly and joyfully pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.